morning, everybody. We um, are continuing our journey through the Bible this week, and uh, many of you will be reading um, the book of Job. If you're not familiar with what we're up to, you'll see inside your program a little outline of how we are uh, looking to read through the Bible in 2012. And there's a reading plan and a lot of other tools on our website that we point you to if you want to join us in the journey. It's never too late. Uh, just pick up where we are. Uh, this week we're going to be in the book of Job. Now, um, when I was uh, a young kid and I went to Sunday school one time and there was um, a Bible reference that they were asking me to read, you read the reference and then you um, read the book name. And I wasn't accustomed to church and church things, and so I promptly said, job. <laughs> and my friends, uh, so-called friends around me, snickered because I had mispronounced. Uh, so if you have said job as you have gotten into the, the book of J-O-B, uh, that's very understandable. Uh, but I should further clarify that there's not really so much a J sound in Hebrew. It's more of a Y sound. So it's more of Yob than Job. And so uh, we've all been incorrect, and we can snicker at each other about that. Uh, but I'm not going to say Yob all morning. I'm going to say Job because that's what we're used to. Uh, but you're going to want to read along with me in chapter 7 in just a moment. We, uh, in the journey, have been reflecting on in these opening chapters and opening verses about the greatness of God and the goodness of God. And they go hand in hand. God is great and He is good. And we have seen His greatness primarily through His work of creation. And we're going to see a whole lot more of His greatness throughout the rest of the Bible. But in these early chapters, uh, primarily His greatness was displayed in His creative work creating the universe, creating our lives, and doing so out of nothing. It wasn't like He took a little something and transformed it to make the universe in our lives. He took it out of nothing. But we've also been encountering the goodness of God. We saw how He pursued us, pursued mankind, so that He could have a covenantal relationship with us. If you don't know what covenantal means, Go back a couple of weeks and listen to that talk. The whole thing was about being in covenant with God. And how as we are in covenant with Him, we have that special, intimate, committed kind of relationship with Him. He engages us all the time, every day, in a variety of details. He is great. He is good. As we get into Job... You're uh, introduced to him in chapter 1, and I'm just going to hurriedly go through a little bit of this because I don't want to steal the thunder of what you're going to read. It's some powerful reading. You're going to be introduced to a man who is exceptional. Uh, not just a good man, he's a holy man, he's a godly man, and out of all that he's a very blessed man, he's very wealthy. And you're going to see a listing of all of his assets, if you were, if you would, and, and that doesn't even include lands and, and uh, crops and all this kind of stuff. But along the way, uh, hard times begin to happen. And uh, suddenly we're barraged with messengers uh, breaking through the door of Job's house and giving him bad news. 
and uh, these guys attacked and killed off all this livestock, and these guys attacked and killed off all this livestock, and these guys attacked and killed off all this livestock. And then another messenger comes in and says, a great windstorm has befallen the homes of your ten children, and they are all dead. Boom, 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 boom. Calamity strikes in hammer fashion. And suddenly he's lost all of his wealth, and he's lost all of his children and their spouses and his grandchildren and their families. It's devastating. And not only that, he begins to be attacked. We find out later that it's by Satan in ways that his body is just plagued with sores. He just breaks out in sores all over. I mean, it's so bad, it's so nasty that the text says he's taking broken pieces of pottery and scraping the sores just to find a little relief. Now, this suffering is so bad, some of his friends hear about it, and they come to visit with him, they come to comfort him, they, they come to console him, and when they see him, they are shocked. They can't even recognize him the text says. And they immediately begin to shout and to weep, to groan and to moan at what they behold in their friend Job. And it's so devastating, it's so far-reaching, the text says that for seven days, they didn't say a word. They were speechless. They just sat with him in compassion and sorrow and emptiness. Then the story goes on to tell us that his suffering wasn't just in this immediate context. And you understand there, there's a, uh, a multiple level of suffering that we can go through. And of course the first is that initial. And so initially you find out you've lost all your wealth. Boom, that hurts. You've lost all of your family. Boom, that hurts. You've lost all of your health. Boom. But then that goes on day after day after week, after week, after month, after month. And in chapter 7, Job says, Has not man a hard service on earth, and are not his days like the days of a hired hand, like a slave who longs for the shadow, like a hired hand who looks for his wages? So I am allotted months of emptiness and nights of misery are apportioned to me. So th there's a whole another level of suffering that is taking place when it goes on in this chronic, prolonged kind of way. Friends, the kind of suffering that we're seeing is without parallel with the exception of Jesus who takes upon himself the sin of humanity as he's dying upon a cross. I mean, aside from Jesus' suffering on our behalf, there is no example of greater suffering than what Job went through. And you're going to be reading about that in great detail. And I just want to encourage you to allow it to penetrate your heart and penetrate your life so that you're feeling it at a, at a deep level. Well, after all of this prolonged suffering, Job's friends are no longer silent. And there are a lot of chapters where they are raising a lot of questions 
and basically accusing Job of sin. Because in their experience, they have never seen anyone suffer like this. And it seems to them the only way you can suffer that much is you must have sinned. You must have gotten sideways or crossways with God, and God's having to punish you. And Job declares his innocence, and he says, I haven't done anything wrong. I've examined my life. Uh, this is not a sin problem. Something else is going on. I don't understand it. And they're like, no, you need to repent. You need to repent. You need to repent. He says, I'm not going to repent. I didn't do anything. And it goes on and on and on. Finally, Job gets to a place where a lot of us have gotten, and we get there much quicker than he did, where we start looking up and we're like, God, why? 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 And he asks it over and over and over. There's no answer. There's no answer. There's no answer. And this goes on chapter after chapter after chapter. And if you're, if you're into it, if you're allowing your heart to engage it, you're like, God, give him an answer. And when you get to chapter 38, God answers. Now put your seatbelt on when God answers. Because when God begins to reply to Job, and there's multiple chapters of answer, it basically is distilled down to this. Your suffering happened because I'm God. And by the way, who are you? Not God, right? And it's a very confrontational, kind of in-your-face response. Here's your answer. You're suffering because I'm God. But what do you do with that? I remind you about how we started our service today. Dave asked you some pointed questions about how great and how good God is. You affirmed it. We sang a song, Be Glorified. Be glorified, be glorified, be glorified in me. My passion is you. Let whatever befall me so that you are glorified in me. There are no throwaway lines or songs in this place. They are all profoundly, penetratingly important. And I know on one level when we begin a gathering and it's like, what do you think about this? How about that? And we're like, yeah, yeah, amen, whoop, and all that. And we sing along, and the music's going, there's the band. Yeah, be glorified, be glorified, be glorified. But I'm going to transport you, if you will, in your heart and in your mind, in those hard times, in those painful times, in those dark times, in those empty times, How much do we want God to be glorified? And how much do we want pain relief?
what we're doing is we're raising the issue of why is there suffering. We're not going to satisfactorily answer that for everybody in a few minutes on a Sunday morning. People have grappled with this for centuries. People have grappled with it way more than I have grappled with it and more than you have grappled with it. Out of all of that grappling, let me distill it down to three statements today. One of the reasons why there is suffering is found in Genesis chapter 3. You've already been there. That reference should already bring to mind what we're talking about. Adam and Eve ate forbidden fruit. They rebelled against God. They sinned against God. And they began to suffer because of punishment. Now this is where Job's friends were. They were like, we know God sends suffering as punishment for sin. We've never seen uh, suffering like this in our entire experience. We've lived a long time. This must be related to sin in some kind of way, Job. Repent. Stop sinning. Ask for God's forgiveness. Reconcile to Him. A second reason that I'll mention to you is illustrated in a number of places, but Luke 22 was the first one that came to my mind when I was preparing for today. That's this story. As Jesus is preparing to be arrested and then He's going to go to the cross, and He's giving some instructions to His disciples, He's having some last words with them. And then He uh, foretells that He's about to be apprehended and He's going to die. And Peter protests, remember? And no, this must not be so. Uh, Lord, uh, I will stand and fight with you. And in Luke 22, verses 31 and 32, Jesus says this to Peter. Peter, Peter, Peter. Satan has desired to sift you as wheat. And I have prayed for you so that when you are restored, you'll be able to strengthen the brothers, my other disciples. Interesting word, Satan has desired. The word literally means has asked for permission to sift you like wheat. You know what it is to sift wheat? And uh, you separate the life-giving wheat that can become bread and sustain people's lives from the chaff. Satan is going to do a sifting of you. It's going to be a separating of your life. It's going to turn your life upside down and inside out. And I have given him permission to do it. Why? For his sanctification. That kind of sifting, that kind of suffering that Peter was going to go through was going to make him more holy, was going to make him more like Christ. And Jesus said, I've prayed for you about this. This will not be an empty, worthless, meaningless experience for you. This will be a profoundly 
dare I say, ordained, because I'm giving him permission to do it, experience for you. So friends, suffering can happen because of punishment. Suffering can happen for our sanctification. And suffering can happen for reasons that we see in the book of Job. Specifically in verses 6 through 12, we're given some backstory, right? So Job says, why, 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 why? And God basically says, because I'm God. And it feels kind of cold, and it feels kind of stark. But we know there's more to the story. How do we know that? You say, well, it's in the Bible. Well, how did it get in the Bible? You say, well, God put it there. Well, how did God put it there? Somebody found out the story and wrote it because God used people to write or to tell the story. Somehow he made this known to Job. Okay, Job, answer number one, why this suffering happens? Because I'm God. Answer number two, I'm going to give you a little backstory. I was convening a gathering of a heavenly council. The text calls it the sons of God. And all of a sudden, Satan, which literally means the accuser, shows up. As it turns out, he had been roaming the planet. He had been looking high and low at a variety of kinds of people. And I asked him, what are you up to? Why are you doing this? And he says, I'm just looking to see if there's any people that truly worship you. And God said, Have you considered my servant Job? Now when Job heard those words from God, how do you think that impacted him? You see, Job, here's the backstory. In the unseen world, in the heavenly realm, there's all kinds of stuff going on, good versus evil. And the accuser said, nobody worships God, nobody glorifies God for no good reason. And I said, oh yeah, look at Job. And Satan said, well, I have. You've got a tremendous hedge around him. Implication, I can't get through it to do anything to him. Does Job serve you and worship you and honor you for no good reason? Look how blessed he is. Look how much you've given him. And peculiarly, what we see in Job chapter 1, I don't know how you can say it other than this, God makes a bet with the devil. And he bet his glory on Job. Sometimes they're suffering because God is confident and knows He will be glorified through your life as you're faithful to Him. Now, God's glory is a big deal. This isn't about God having ego. This is about reality. And the reality is God is the most important person the most important thing, the most important reality there is in the universe anywhere. And if that's true, 
then for us to be reminded of that, for us to be able to get that, for us to properly prioritize all that's in this uh, finitude of life, we must be confronted with the glory of God, the glory of God, the glory of God, so that it's in proper perspective and everything else is in proper prioritization. He is doing us a favor when He reminds us of His glory. It's a gift to humanity for us to be able to behold the glory of God. And so when God chooses to glorify Himself, not in creation, not in mountains and oceans, sunrises and sunsets and all that kind of wondrous stuff, but when God chooses rather to glorify Himself through a life, how precious, how special, how privileged is that? That God would say, hey, Here's my glory. Look at Job. Look at her. Look at him. And so, you're going through some suffering. Here's the grid to run your suffering through. Nothing wrong with the why question. It's important to ask the why question. Am I going through a time of suffering because of sin? If so, God, show me so that I can repent. Now, let me add a clarifying word at this point. If you are a follower of Jesus and you have given your life to Jesus and you are now alive to God and you are in a covenant relationship with God, there is no condemnation and there is no punishment for you. Jesus took your punishment upon himself. Praise be to Jesus, glory to Jesus, worship Jesus. Now, Hebrews 12 makes it clear, though we don't get punished because Jesus took our punishment, we can get sideways with God and He will then chasten us or discipline us. And there is an eternity's worth of difference between punishment and chastisement. Punishment is about retribution. You're going to pay for this. Chastisement and discipline is about training, teaching, restoring, building. And so, we do well if we're having a time of suffering to ask, is there sin in my life? Is there something I need to repent of? Could God be disciplining me? I want to learn the lesson. Could it be that God's using my suffering for my sanctification? That having gone through what I'm going through, I will be more like Jesus. Because friends, here's the reality. God's greatest passion for us is that we become like Jesus. That's His passion for us. And that passion is way greater than our passion for it, right? We have a multiplicity of passions and we do what we can to have Jesus as one of them. And if there's anything that we're getting out of the life of Peter and some other episodes that we could talk about out of the Bible is that we do well when we lean into our suffering in ways that sanctify us, in ways that 
take the chaff out of our lives that free us from fallenness so that we have greater capacity to know Jesus and be like Jesus. Is the suffering a matter of discipline? Is the suffering a matter of sanctification? Or is this suffering simply and only a matter of God's glorification? As I continue to love Him first and best, as I continue to give Him my number one allegiance in life, no matter how the circumstances are being played out, He's glorified. People are drawn to Him because of what I'm willing to go through and still hold fast to Him. Now, um, I had the opportunity to learn about Robert and Denise not too long ago. They live in Tennessee. Robert's an elder in his church. And 13 years ago, they had a baby girl born into their family, a girl named Shannon. Shannon was born with what in layman's terms is referred to as a flat brain. You know, the brain has all kinds of ripples in it. And when it's flat, that minimizes and impacts function significantly. So now she's 13 years of age, and she's not able to talk. She's not able to be potty trained. Uh, her legs are so wobbly, she can hardly walk without falling. And she has the mental capacity or capability of about a one-year-old. Robert says that when Shannon was born and there was the diagnosis of her situation, his dad called him up on the phone. His dad's a godly man. His dad loves the Lord, raised Robert to love the Lord. And he says, son, how you doing? It's a hard diagnosis. And Robert said, Dad, you always taught me that God is sovereign and God is good. And Dad, there's nobody that I know that is better prepared to father this daughter than me. Thank you for raising me in the ways of God. So Robert and Denise began this journey of raising this special needs child. A couple of years, three years after Shannon had been born, Denise was diagnosed with breast cancer. It apparently was the kind of breast cancer that is most easily treated and has the best prognosis, but once they got in there with the surgery, they found out they were wrong, and it was a devastating kind of breast cancer. And now, Denise was going to have to go through some very difficult chemotherapy and radiation. And Robert holds her hands and says to her in tender ways, now is the time for us to believe what we have always believed. 
And together they believe that God is great, that God is good, that God would use the suffering through that cancer to sanctify them and to glorify God. Two years after Denise's diagnosis, Robert got cancer. And after the doctor left the room bringing the news, Denise took Robert's hands and said, now's the time for us to believe what we have always believed. They both successfully battled their cancers. A few years passed, and Denise began to have some curious back problems. She went to see a chiropractor, and he was doing a little adjustment stuff, and he was like, well, this is just not right. He takes an x-ray, and he says, you need to go have a CT scan. I think you've got broken vertebrae. She goes and gets the CT scan. She goes home. The guy that reads the scans calls him up and says, when can you come in? We want to talk to you about the results. And they said, how about tomorrow? And the guy said, how about tonight? So they go back over, and they read these CT scans and come to find out Denise's breast cancer had metastasized to her back, gotten into the vertebrae, and so expanded that it cracked the vertebrae. Another regimen of chemo and radiation, back brace for a year, a lot of pain, a lot of suffering, but continuing to believe what they had always believed. After successfully battling that cancer and apparently being cancer-free, Robert being cancer-free, this past February 2011, Denise began to have some more symptoms, went in, and come to find out she now has acute leukemia. A couple of months after her diagnosis, Robert was asked to speak. He's an elder in his church. Would you describe something about the greatness of God and the goodness of God in light of what you and Denise have been going through? And he shared some of the things I just shared with you about their journey. He shared some of the things I just shared with you about Job. And then he said, my wife is pale. Her skin is brittle to touch. She has absolutely no hair on her head. But because of what Jesus is doing in her, she is more beautiful to me than the day we married. December 18, Denise became free of her suffering. And Jesus came and took her unto himself. And she is in her reward, and she is in heaven, and she is enjoying the most intimate presence of Jesus.
And Robert's testimony is that God is great. He's sovereign. He's over it all. He's in charge of it all. And somehow out of his greatness and goodness and wisdom, he has seen fit out of all the people on the planet to entrust such a needy child as Shannon to our care. What an honor that he would trust her to our care. And out of all the people on the planet, he's entrusted his glory to our battling cancer. We are so blessed that he would entrust these hard things to us as he has. Back to Job. As he is grappling and dealing with all of these calamities, what's his confession of faith in the greatness and the goodness of God? You know it. Job says, the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Oh, may God, may God work in us in such powerful, penetrating, profound ways. I overheard a pastor the other day talking about a conversation with one of his church members. And the church member made a comment that no doubt some of you have made before. Somewhat in jest, but really meaning it. Oh, I learned a long time ago. Don't ever pray that God give you patience. Because He'll send circumstances your way that are so hard that you have to grapple with to such an extent so that you can develop patience. I'm not going to do that. Robert said, God, would you do whatever it takes for me to be like Jesus? Robert believes God answered his prayers. And the question is, what is our passion? What is it that we want most? Do we most want God and the formation of Christ's likeness in us? Or do we want something else? So let me ask you, in light of what we've been hearing, in light of what you're going to read for these next couple of weeks, Will you repent and believe? Will you stop going in a direction as if God's not sovereign and as if God's not good and as if God's not involved and engaged? Will you stop that 
Will you repent and go in the direction as if God is all over your life, involved in all the circumstances of your life? And when there are suffering and hard times that God has high holy purposes at work for you, for us, for his glory. Will you repent and believe? Believing that he's inviting you into relationship. Believing that he has pursued you about relationship. Believing that sin can interrupt all of that. But Jesus is the way to conquer that sin so that you can be reconciled to God. Believing that even when life is hard and painful, God's at work in good and blessed ways. Believing that your perseverance, your pressing through, will result in your sanctification and His glorification. Will you repent and believe? Let me pray for you. Father, what do we say? You've put it in our heart that we want to pray whatever it takes. Make us like Jesus and whatever it takes, glorify yourself in us. We want to pray that. And we're afraid to pray that. We want to pray that. But we also desire a lot of other things. And so we ask and invite your spirit to touch us, penetrate the heart, take away double-mindedness, allow us to be singly passionate about you. In Jesus' name, amen.